Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at stmose, that's S-A-I-N-T-M-O-S dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. Good morning. My name is Ian McFadden. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Moses Church in Baltimore City, and a very happy Thanksgiving weekend to you. For many of us, this Thanksgiving and this Christmas season in particular are filled with reminders of people who are missing, of things that aren't as they should be. Hopefully, uh, even with travel restrictions, with COVID isolation, with smaller gatherings, you've still found plenty of things this year to fuel the fire of your gratitude to God. But that aside, it's it's also good to pay attention to what we miss, to pay attention to the longings of our hearts, to, to the things that aren't yet as they should be. Today, we're going to explore how our longings can open up space for God to work. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. You can read that on your own. I'll pull it up uh, in Google or on your Bible app. I'll be teaching from the NLT version. So that's Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25 in the NLT. Let me pray. Father, I believe you're real. I believe you want us to know you. I believe that you are speaking to us by your Spirit, and you speak to us primarily through your Word. So it just makes sense to ask you to send your Spirit to us wherever we are listening to this, to this church family, as we chew on your word together, would you help us imaginatively to get into it? Would you give us fresh eyes to see you? Would you give us courage, heal our hearts, and shape us for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday begins a season uh, that Christians for a long time have called Advent. It's the four weeks running up to Christmas. Historically, followers of Jesus have used this season to sharpen our hunger pangs for Christ to return. We do this by using our imaginations to get back into the Bible's story of how God's people waited for his first coming, for the coming of God in Christ, his first Advent. This year, we're going to take a look at an angle that we often miss. Did you know that of the four Gospels, the four Bible accounts of the life of Jesus, only two of them give us the Christmas story? Only two give us the Christmas story, but all four of them begin their story about the coming of Jesus with John the Baptist, a man whose life's work was to prepare for Jesus. So this year, we're going to deepen our thirst for Jesus to return by learning from various episodes in John's life about what it looks like to long for the kingdom of Jesus to arrive in fullness. Today, we begin that journey with John's parents and with their waiting. The story opens up this way. When Herod was king of Judea, which might seem like a terribly dull way to begin the story, except for two things. Firstly, 
The story names Herod so that we have a timestamp. Let me tell you what I mean. I mean, literally this week, as I was preparing this message, I checked the tracking on a package coming to my house. And the tracking gave me timestamps of the various geographical locations where that package was on its journey into my life. And so I checked that tracking because it matters to me that this package is real, that it exists, that it is at some point going to intersect with my life. And so in the Bible, you'll come across this sort of time stamping in the names of kings uh, or other officials a bunch through the Bible. It's not just to put us to sleep. It is, in fact, to wake us up to the fact that these things actually happened. They aren't abstract. They're not just out there. They are as much a part of the sequence of ordinary people's lives as a package arriving on my porch on Tuesday. And I find that very encouraging. I also find it encouraging that after the text timestamps with Herod the Great, it within that same sentence pivots to a very ordinary couple. Nobody too special. Were it actually not for the story that we're about to read about them, you'd never have heard their names. But now, in light of this story, in light of God breaking into their lives, they are far more significant in the sweep of world history than Herod ever was. Zechariah, we're told, is a priest, and he was married to Elizabeth, and she was also from a priestly family. Their lives uh, would have been a bit like being in the National Guard, and by that I mean um, they operated on a rotation. So whenever Zechariah's rotation came up, uh, they would temporarily, the couple, the family, or temp, the couple would temporarily relocate to Jerusalem for a stint. And he would do his duties there in the temple, uh, helping out with all the various tasks that an institution as large and busy as, as the temple had. And the text doesn't say this, but I'm guessing that their rotations to Jerusalem, to work in the temple, were a highlight for Zechariah and Elizabeth. A joyful duty, but I'm guessing also one that nonetheless masked, nonetheless was, was not able to mask the longing that they carried in their hearts every day. Text goes on to tell us in verse 7 that they weren't able to have kids. What had probably begun as hopes dashed, maybe a miscarriage, then became hopes deferred as they waited and waited, and now it was looking hopeless. Verse 18, Zechariah admits that he's elderly. (laughs) And giving him the benefit of the doubt, not knowing that he was going to be recorded forever in Scripture, he says, and my wife is well along in years. So let that be a warning to you, gentlemen. Even when you think you're just having a private tete-a-tete with an angel, you've got to be careful what you say about your wife's age. And maybe Zechariah even uh, tried to use humor sometimes to deflect his pain. Because in their culture, as in ours, the inability to have children was, for, for people who longed to have children, was unspeakably painful and often accompanied by a sense of isolation, maybe even shame. And in their culture, 
even more so than ours, infertility was deeply stigmatized. It was often uh, associated with, um, with a curse or with God's displeasure in a person. And so I want to be clear that our text underlines the fact that that is not the case. It's quick to curb against jumping to any unwarranted conclusions like that. So the story goes out of its way, actually, to tell us that this couple in verses 5 and 6 were devoted to God. It says they were righteous in his eyes. It wasn't just keeping up a good facade. It, it means that God saw, God who sees people's hearts, he, he sees us not as we want to be seen, but as we are. God saw their motivations and their commitment to him. He saw that they were committed to, to, to learning his ways and to patterning their lives to fit with his values. And you might ask, why is Luke the masterful storyteller giving us this story. Why is he giving us all these, these quite personal, even, even quite painful details of this very ordinary first century couple's life? And I think the answer is this. I think that he is showing us that in their longing, we see the longing of the nation. In the uncertainty and the pain of their waiting, we see a microcosm of the pain and the uncertainty of the entire nation. And you might ask, what was the nation waiting for? And I don't think, I don't think you could give a singular answer to that any more than you could give a singular answer to what Americans today are longing to see in the future. But you can generalize safely, and I'm going to generalize that the, the longings of first century Jewish people were, were, were most likely a mashup of three things of waiting for God to send a rescuer to deliver them from their enemies, of waiting for God to vindicate their faith and their countercultural way of life, as in uh, like showing them that it was all worth it, and, and thirdly, waiting for God to end the years of exile from Babylon. Uh, now, of course, they were back in the land, but... Everything about their life, from, from the freedom to self-govern to their worship in the temple, it, ever since the exile, it, it, it sort of felt hollowed out and a kind of a, uh, only a pale shadow of what it had been in its former glory. So those were the main three longings. And to be clear, we're not talking about personal fantasies. We're not talking about hobby horses here. We're talking about three major hopes that were rooted in the promises that God had made to his people through the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. But as you'll know, if you've ever hoped for something that's taken its sweet time in coming, you'll know we all have coping strategies, and some of them are less helpful than others. Many of uh, the Jewish religious leaders, Zechariah's uh, colleagues in the priesthood, they had um, consciously, or giving them benefit of the doubt, unconsciously, decided to make life as comfortable as they could for themselves, uh, just by kind of fitting in. So we could call this the accommodationist strategy. Externally, they still performed their ceremonial functions. They, I'm guessing, even in some settings, were hyper-moralistic to sort of make themselves appear more righteous. But, but internally, they were, they were corrupt. Internally, they capitulated entirely to the, to the Roman culture and what they felt it offered them. And they were far from the heart of God. So one of the only other times we see a priest in 
Luke's telling of the life of Jesus, it's that priest in the famous story of the Good Samaritan who stepped over a body in the street because he wanted to maintain his purity. So you had the accommodationists on one hand, of whom, of which uh, many of Zechariah's colleagues were a part. And then on the other hand, you had escapists. These were people who longed for the promises of God to be fulfilled, but who were unwilling to wait and to work for those promises to be fulfilled in the mess of society. So instead, those people retreated to little wilderness enclaves where they could hunker down with their own people, where they could control very tightly the culture that they were creating themselves and where they could wait for God to show up. And of course... If we're honest, both of these coping strategies are at play among Christians in America today. And if we're honest with ourselves, and I hope we are, we perhaps even see strands of both of these cropping up in our own lives. But I love this. Where God showed up initially in beginning to fulfill those old promises that everyone was hungering for was not to King Herod in his palace. It wasn't to the accommodationists. It wasn't to the escapists, but it was to an, to ordinary people, to a heartbroken wife and husband who, despite all their setbacks, were still vigorously devoted to walking with God. And that's what the text is pointing us to in verses 5 and 6. This couple is so ordinary that where Herod needed no introduction, they need an introduction. But this couple is so extraordinary that in a culture of accommodation and escape, they were, the text points out, yet righteous in God's eyes. And I find that deeply encouraging and also challenging. These, friends, are the sort of lives that I I think will be key to the future of the church in this city. Ordinary people living and laboring with hearts filled with longing for God to bring his kingdom more fully. People utterly devoted to him, not escaping except for, for purposed rest, not accommodating except out of thoughtful collaboration and contextualization. Just just imagine a network of Elizabeths and Zechariahs across the city of Baltimore. People walking blamelessly before God with our eyes on him, our hearts hungry for the renewal of all things. Whatever the church looks like post-COVID, its health, I'm convinced, is going to be measured by the presence of people like this. Poor in spirit, Eyes on Christ, courageous and persevering in devotion. Ellie did such a great job. Thank you, Ellie, last week for soliciting some interaction from us. So I want to give you a chance to do that again. Uh, feel free to use the chat box or the comments section to share your thoughts after you've prayerfully reflected for a moment. Here's the question that I want you to ponder for a moment. What aspects of Christ's not yet completely fulfilled kingdom do you most long to see in our day, in our city? Remember, I'm not talking about your personal dreams. I'm not talking about your hopes to be a movie star or the goat of all goats or whatever it is. I'm talking about the values of God being enacted here on earth as in heaven. What aspects of God's kingdom are you longing, hungering to see fulfilled?
I'll give you a moment to share those thoughts in the chat box or comments. All right, let's jump back to this story. You thought it was good news that God initiated the coming of Jesus, not with an announcement to Herod's court, but by visiting this nothing-too-fancy couple who were living through their own heartache. The news gets still better. Here's how. God is still faithful even when Zechariah can't quite muster the faith to believe unreservedly, that God is going to keep his word. Watch with me how this plays out. Zechariah's name gets drawn in the lottery to have the privilege of burning incense during the twice-daily offering. This probably was, it could well have been, the first or the only time in his life that he would get this honor. So he's there in the temple, in the inside of the temple, uh, the little incense altar doing uh, the thing. And outside in the temple courts are all the worshipers, a crowd, it tells us, praying to God. And, and what they're praying is, is that God would be faithful to his promise to forgive their sins. And then, bam, all of a sudden, this angel shows up next to the incense altar. And just like all the, almost all the other instances in the Bible where an angel shows up to pass along a message, um, from God. And that's what, mes- that's what angel means, messenger. Uh, Zechariah just freaks out. And I find that really helpful too, because if you're like me, sometimes when you read the Bible, it can feel like angels are showing up all over the place. It can feel like there are burning bushes and water crossings and people walking on the water and miraculous healings every day. And we're like, of course it was easy for them to believe. If only, if only God would pop an angel up here in one of these Zoom squares, then I'd find it easy to trust too. But the, the truth is that angels weren't frequent. When they showed up, people freaked out. And faith wasn't easy. God's promises to deliver and to vindicate and to return his people from exile, they seem to have been hung up in the mail. Like they've been delayed. People are waiting and waiting and waiting. And this couple's heart-rending prayers for a baby feel like they've been launched off to God, and on the other end, all they're getting is that little three-dot quote box that eventually disappears. Faith wasn't easy for them either. So the angel, Gabriel to be specific, he's named, he's an important angel, appears to Zechariah. And after he tells him, calm down, don't be afraid, the first thing that he tells him is this, God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son. And we're not going to spend time today unpacking all that it means for, for uh, John to, to be coming in the spirit and the power of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. We're not going to be talking today about what it means for him to be a fulfillment in some way of Malachi's vision of the hearts of parents and the hearts of children being turned back toward each other. We'll get into some of that uh, next week. But what, what I want us to see in Zechariah's reaction uh, is this. When the angel says, you're going to have a baby, Zechariah says in verse 18, how can this be? I'm old. 
and so is my wife. And we see from the way that Gabriel responds to him that Zechariah is not expressing like some sort of scientific curiosity here when he says, how can this be? He's, he's expressing doubt that God will do what he said he will do. It's not scientific curiosity. It's doubt about God's goodness and ability to keep his word. And almost uh, uh, as if we, um, almost as if the Bible doesn't want us to miss this. The very next story highlights uh, Zechariah's imperfect faith by contrast. So you'll remember the same angel, Gabriel, shows up to a teenage girl named Mary. She hasn't yet been with a man, so just so we're all clear, if you haven't had the birds and the bees yet, scientifically, this is at least as improbable as a postmenopausal couple. And he tells her that she is going to become miraculously pregnant, and she believes. So my point here isn't to bash Zechariah and Elizabeth, for, uh, for, or Zechariah at least, for having imperfect faith. I mean, I see, I see myself in them, don't you? After all, walking in the way of God, obeying his commands, is not, is not entirely the same as actively expecting that things will change. It's not the same as actively expecting that he will make good on his promises. Or if I were to put it differently, I would say, you can do what God says to do without always believing that he will do what he says he will. You can do what God says to do without always believing that he will do what he says he will. And the result, I think, for most of us, looks a lot like Zechariah does when he comes back out of that temple, temporarily unable to speak. We end up with a a muted faith. Remember, uh, Luke is is brilliantly using Zechariah and Elizabeth as this, this microcosm of the whole nation. So in a sense, Zechariah's lack of belief that God could actually give them a child, though they regularly prayed for him to do so, that is somehow a a picture of the nation's lack of faith that God could make good on his promise to send a deliverer, though their daily temple and synagogue prayers and readings begged for him to do it. If I were to paraphrase uh, New Testament scholar David Garland here, I'd say, when we fail actively to expect that God can make good on what he has promised, and again, it matters whether it is something he's promised or whether it's something we're just wishing for, when we fail to actively expect that he can make good on what he's promised, we can end up in this sort of spiritual torpor unable to speak clearly and credibly about the hope that God's promises awaken. And this is the point on which our sisters and brothers from Latin America can give us great help in what Justo Gonzalez calls manana theology. This is what Justo says. The world will not always be as it is. It won't even be an outgrowth of what is. The God who created the world in the first place is about to do a new thing, a thing as great and surprising as that first act of creation. God is already doing this thing, and we can join in it by the power of the Spirit. Manana, that's the Spanish for tomorrow, manana is here. 
true. Manana is not yet today, but today can be lived out of the glory and the promise of manana thanks to the power of the Spirit. Manana, get this, is also a word of judgment on today. When one looks forward to a manana, one implies that the present is not as rosy as some of us, some would have us think. It's no coincidence that almost immediately after Constantine's conversion, there were many who felt that the book of Revelation ought not to be included in the canon. That's in the, the, the books of the Bible. Not only did it speak of Rome, and Rome was now Christian, as the harlot sitting on seven hills and drunk with the blood of the martyrs, but it also spoke of a new heaven and a new earth, thereby implying that the benevolent reign of the emperor was far distant from the reign of God. So, although we can all be deeply relieved and grateful that Zechariah's imperfect faith did not prevent God from keeping his promises. We can also learn from Zechariah to, to sharpen our faith that God will keep his promises. And we can learn from our Latin American brothers and sisters to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we want to see manana today. Here again, I want to give you space to reflect and to share among us. Take a moment of silence and then hit the chat box in the comments with your ideas. How do we together both sharpen our longing for God to act and strengthen our faith that he will? Or to put it differently, what habits, what communal and personal habits might help us to have greater faith that God will keep his promises. I'll give you a moment to reflect on that and hit the chat box. Advent, this four weeks heading into Christmas this year, is almost unlike any most of us have experienced before. Whether you're just curious about Jesus or whether you've been walking with him for years like Zechariah and Elizabeth. But in some ways, and I want you to hear me gently here, hear me lovingly, in some ways the, the losses and personal longings of this year they position us well to long as a, as a church family for Jesus to complete his great renovating work. Our, our wounds and our unmet longings can make us bitter or they can sharpen our hunger for God to act. So do you think that this year you could join me in letting our hunger, letting our our hunger for the family around the table, letting letting that hunger to, to see our loved ones all together, let that hunger fuel our hunger for a united global church. Could Could our pain this year at the loss of life due to COVID fuel our collective cry for God to speed the day of his comfort? Could, could our anger and our agony over the injustice that's been foregrounded this year, could, could that amplify our appetite for God's justice to roll like waters and his righteousness like a never-ending stream? 
See, God hasn't promised us when he will complete his work, any more than he promised to Zechariah's colleagues when the Messiah would come. So, our longing can't be this sort of sugar-high spirituality. It can't just be a flash in the span. It's in the pan. It's got to have backbone. It's it's, it's got to be a faith that counts the cost. It's we've got to be ready to to link arms and link hearts and take one step together and then another one, like Elizabeth and like Zechariah, walking with our eyes fixed on God. Righteous in his eyes, walking in his ways. We don't cut and run because it gets hard. We don't just capitulate because we sense the way the wind's blowing. We fix our eyes on Christ, the one who persevered and who suffered on our behalf. And like the author of Hebrews says, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. But as we've seen, even longing and righteousness can leave our lives muted in the world without faith. So as we feel these pangs of our longings for kingdom fulfillment growing, let's also stoke the flames of faith. Let's, let's point out to each other the ways that God is at work in our lives, even, even in little ways. And let's remind each other of the great sweep of God's work through history, his, his story in the world that gives shape and hope to our individual stories. And let's help one another to believe that the God who began his rescue of the world by bursting into the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth is the same God who's coming again, manana, to make all things new. Amen. Amen.